This podcast was made possible thanks to Drama Victoria. Hello and welcome to The Aside, a podcast for drama teachers and students. I am Nick Waxman and today we are very lucky to have Dr Richard Broom, Emeritus Professor of History at La Trobe University. And he is going to speak to us about the Jimmy Sharman Troupe. He's going to tell us a little bit about who Jimmy Sharman was, why people would join the show, who got involved, what life was like on the road, why men were drawn to Jimmy Sharman's, and the highs and lows of the circuit. This episode will of course help those students who have selected the boxer for their 2020 BCE drama solo. But you'll also learn in this episode how these boxers really were performers and what life was like for them. Without any further ado, I bring you this longer than usual, very special episode of The Aside. Please note that the video interview accompanying this episode is available for Drama Victoria members. Please click the link in the description. Let's get to it. Ladies and gentlemen, I have the absolute pleasure to introduce the Emeritus Professor, Dr. Richard Broom, uh, who is at La Trobe University and the President of the Royal Historical Society, Victoria. Thank you so much, Professor Richard Broom, for giving us your time today. My great pleasure to be here, Nick. And we have the pleasure to talk about Jimmy Sharman. And uh, the first question is, uh, who was Jimmy Sharman? Well, Jimmy Sharman was born in 1887 at Norellan, which is just near Canberra. Camden outside Sydney and uh, he was just a knockabout kid. Uh, his dad was I think a, a labourer, a very large family, about 13 or 15 children and uh, very early on he got interested in boxing because I think his grandfather had done it and so he started turning up to boxing tents which had begun around the 1860s or 70s when agricultural shows got going in country towns. And uh, inevitably, those shows took on a bit of entertainment too. A sideshow alley started to develop, knock on downs, rides and things, and boxing tents emerged. So young Jimmy had uh, a, a go in uh, boxing tents. Uh, didn't do particularly well. He's a, uh, not a big bloke. Uh, and he, uh, it's often you fight all comers, although sometimes they were matched in size and weight. And uh, he did that and then got more interested in boxing. Apparently he was trained by a clergyman and then uh, did a lot of boxing and then decided to run his own boxing tent. So I think the first one was in 1911 and the Jimmy Sharman tent ran for the next uh, 59 years until about 1970. So he, he was the boss of the show until about the 1940s and then his son, Jimmy Sharman II, pictured here, uh, took over uh, the running of the show uh, and um, the, he was the one that saw it out. This is actually Jimmy Sharman III, who never took a role in, in running the tents, but he did uh, all take a great role in Australian drama and he, he ran a lot of stage shows. So if you Google Jimmy Sharman III, you would see the uh, impact he had on Australian drama. So uh, this was uh, the family that ran the most notable boxing tent, but there probably were 15 to 20 over that period of time operating in Australia. For those that don't know, what was the Jimmy Sharman boxing tent or troupe? Well, uh, it was uh, a group of uh, 
tent fighters who would travel the country. So Jimmy Sharman would hire a group of uh, boxers or people he thought could box reasonably, and he would sign them up to go on a, say, a, a three-month tour or maybe a six-month tour. He'd they'd agree of wages and conditions. And so the troop would start off, and Jimmy Sharman had a beat that went from Mount Gambier in South Australia right up to Cairns. And when they got up to Gympie in Queensland, they got on a train and the train stopped at all the big towns and the trucks would drive off the flat top train, go to town, do a couple of nights of the show, back onto the train, go to the next uh, um, town up the coast. So it was extensive right across eastern Australia. And so these young men would sign up for, say, three or six months at a particular wage and... Uh, off they'd go. And so when they got to a town, the, um, the troop would unpack the tent. They brought their own tent. Uh, they put up a big tent. They had a mat at which the events were staged on. They didn't have a boxing ring as in the professional uh, arena. They had a mat on which they boxed. They had sawdust under that. So it was a little bit soft. And uh, so that night came, people started to flow into the uh, to the showgrounds. They were attracted to the boxing tent because it was exciting and dramatic. Often the beer tent was nearby, so uh, they'd get young blokes having a few beers and then they'd get enough courage to have a go. And so the, the, um, the boxing tent uh, owner would call out, who'll take a glove, who'll take a glove? And come on, fellas, come on, see if you can have a go at these tent boxes. And so perhaps the local champion, his mates would push him forward, you know, have a go. And uh, he'd get up on the board and he'd say, yeah, I'll have a go. If they're a bit slow to do that, there was usually a plant called the G put in the crowd and he'd start talking to the owner and they might have a bit of an argument and then he'd say, yeah, okay, I'll come up and have a box. So uh, in these various ways, you had um, about half a dozen fights would be arranged and then people would buy tickets, they'd flow into the tent often led by uh, someone who was called a ram. He'd say, oh, yeah, I'm going to come and watch this show. And he'd walk in, buy a ticket. He was a, also sometimes another plant. So you can see there's a huge performance element even before the fight starts. It's about the outside. Everyone would be crowding around. And uh, eventually um, they'd go inside and there would be about staged. And it was not fair dinkum. The, the locals uh, were given a fair go and usually the locals had to win because if the tent boxes won too easily, people wouldn't come back next night. They wanted them back next night or the next session. They might have two or three sessions if they ran all day at a big show. So um, it, it was a way of um, young people entering the exciting world and having a go to test their masculinity, I guess, and all their friends seeing how they did. And, of course, they'd win maybe a couple of quid, a couple of pounds. In those things could be a week's wages. They might earn in the equivalent maybe 50 or $100 for winning about of three or four short rounds. Wow, look at that. So anyone could box as part of these shows um, if they came to the tent, but uh, who was actually in the ring? So who, was, who would box as part of this touring show? Well, a lot of young blokes thought this was a very exciting life. Usually they came from working class backgrounds where uh, to earn a week's wages in the tent was a, a big deal. Um, and also to get paid well as a tent boxer was good. 
So you can see on this line up here, this is Jimmy Sharman's show, and these are the boxes on the right-hand side. See, they're in boxing gear, they're in boots, and they're looking tough and got their arms folded. Uh, and uh, these blokes here would have been the ones that Jimmy Sharman's called up to have a box. So they'd climb up the ladder, get up here, young fella, okay, you'll be, we'll, we'll look after you, and blah, blah, blah. And you can see here's a, a young Aboriginal bloke. There's a couple of, this is an Aboriginal fighter here, and I think perhaps here too. So, you know, you had a large cross-section of working-class youth in particular, but in farming communities, anyone would get up and have a go. Even, you know, the farmer's son would get up there, the grazier's son might have a go. Um, but Aboriginal people were particularly attracted to this, and we can talk about why. But here we have Jimmy Sharman II here, and this man here is Rudd Key. He was the ticket box operator, and he used to be a professional boxer himself. He was a, a Chinese-Australian. Uh, his name was Rudd, R-U-D-D, Key. And he was with the Shaman Tents till it closed. Wow, it's amazing! Look at that. All right, um, you, can see, you can see all the uh, the pictures in the background. Often of look, here's a picture. That says Jack Dempsey. He was an Australian champion. Rocky Marciano. He was an American champion. So they had all the pictures of world and other uh, champions up on the board. It was very colourful. These banners were rolled up at the end of the day, put in the truck and then rolled out again. Um, so this is it. Cont contests arranged for all local and district champions. So yeah, I think my impression before coming into this and learning about it would be that they'd come and watch champions boxing, but it wasn't about that. It really was a round or two for a pound or two locals would come and, and, and box. So they would, re I know this isn't a question I was going to ask, but they wouldn't box each other. It would just be them boxing locals. Generally. I mean, um, a friend of mine, I wrote a book called Sideshow Alley with Alec Giacomos. He was a wrestler and they would always have a couple of wrestling matches, but usually it was dangerous for a wrestler to wrestle with a, a local who wasn't trained because someone could get hurt. Whereas in boxing, you know, you could um, uh, make sure the punches didn't land properly. You could dodge and weave. But with boxing close up in a grip, you could, someone could get a broken arm easily. So um, they used to have usually a wrestling match, but the wrestlers were both from the, um, from the troop and it was more like an exhibition. Yeah, and more impressive to watch that anyway. Um, yeah. yeah um, okay. So, how would a boxer get involved with Jimmy Sharman? Well, lots of ways. Um, partly it was by word of mouth. Someone um, would uh, say, "Oh, I got this young fellow in Shepherd, and he's a terrific uh, uh, young fighter and sportsman. You should take him on a tour." And so Jimmy Sharman might contact them. Other times, uh, he would get approaches from young blokes saying that they wanted to. To, to, to join the troop and, and have a go. And of course, it was a very adventurous life for a young Aboriginal boxer in particular. Um, they were generally uh, confined either to reserves or country towns, didn't see much of the country. And to be a member of the troop was a way of seeing the world. So here you have a picture of the Sands brothers now, Dave Sands here was an excellent, excellent boxer. He was an Australian champion and a Commonwealth champion, and he was uh, in line to have a, a world title bout when he was killed in a truck accident. 
Now these blokes are all his brothers and they all boxed and they all boxed in the tent. Even Dave Sands boxed in the tent, but in his case, the um, tent promoters usually got Sands to come along because he was a big name and everyone in Australia knew Dave Sands. And so if it was known in the advertising that Dave Sands was going to be there and do an exhibition box, um, then that would pull the crowds in. But his brothers all all boxed. Some of them boxed in, the, or just about all of them boxed in the ring too in, as state champions and things, but they all had to go on the tents. So it was by word of mouth, it was by seeing a tent and seeing, well, this is an exciting life, I'd like to join this, that people would approach uh, the tent owner and he'd say, oh yeah, you can, I'll sign you up and it'll be three months and blah, blah, and we'll be going up the East Coast. So a non-professional boxer could just come along to one of the bouts and say, oh, you know, I won in the ring, could I join you for three months? And that would be of as course. easy as that? Yes, of course. He was always looking for, for people and particularly looking for Aboriginal boxers because they added plenty of drama because you would have in, in, a, in an Australia where, where race was still an issue in society, you would have black versus white. And I spoke to a lot of Aboriginal boxers who said it was actually fantastic to be in a ring and be able to belt the hell out of a white bloke because you couldn't do it outside the ring. And so it gave them a chance to show their superiority in at least one department of life that is in the boxing ring. So I, I argue that it was really important for Aboriginal young men. It, it let them see the world. It, it gave them experience that they wouldn't have before. And it gave them the sense that they were equal. Well, thank you. Um, so there are some conflicting accounts of life on the road with Jimmy Sharman. Um, from what you've learned, how would you describe the touring boxer's life? Well, I think the best analogy is it's like the army. It was uh, a life of a lot of blokes together continually. So when you're on the road, you might be on the road for three months with the same group of fellows. And you can see them in this image here. They're all chowing down together. And there's a young bloke here. I don't know whether that's Jimmy Sharman's grandson there, uh, but it's someone's family, that young bloke. But you see um, here, and they've got the Jimmy Sharman troops, so they've got a, a recognition of having uh, the sweaters that uh, they're part of a group. Um, they're part of a group living a, a pretty rough life. They slept on the mat in the tents at night. Um, at the end of the show, maybe 10 or 11 o'clock at night, they'd pull the tent down and head for the next town uh, the, uh, the next morning or maybe through the night, sleep in the truck and get up and, uh, and put the tent up in a new town all again. So it was, at times a fairly intense and tough life. Um, it was rough, but it, it was something they all liked. It was with, with blokes, with their mates. See, this is Alec Jackamos, who I wrote the book with. He was a young Greek Australian, and here he is with, a, I think, a bloke called Joey. Oh, no, that's Johnny Harris, I think. And they were great mates. Uh, and they also went with Harry John's troop for a while as well, and that's his truck, which is still in the Museum of Victoria today. So it was about mateship. It was about uh, a tough life, a bit glamorous too, because when you got to town, the boxes were seen as someone. They were out of towners, they were strangers, they were a bit exotic, and they were seen to be pretty tough, people who could handle themselves. So you could see 
young men um, found this very attractive and young Aboriginal men did too. I talked to a bloke who said, you know, when I was in the town, I was just one of the boxers. I wasn't an Aboriginal bloke in particular. And when I went to the pictures, I went to with the boxers and I wasn't thrown out for being in the wrong seats in country town picture shows. So to be a, a boxer was someone to be reckoned with and it gave them uh, prestige, it, it gave them confidence and it made them feel as they were really someone and they were part of something that was exciting. And, and I read also potentially, uh, I read that um, some, you know, if, if time permitted, uh, they were able to have quite a nice lunch and sometimes it was just a pie, a pie during the day and some of them slept in nice accommodation and some of them slept on the mats was... was um, yeah, look, it varied. Uh, yeah. uh, I think some tent owners didn't treat their their boxes as well as others. Uh, shaman, I think, treated people well because they were an asset. And you didn't want them getting dissatisfied and running off halfway through the tour because then you'd be left heading for the next town and you didn't have a proper lineup. So I think it was in their interest to treat them pretty well. I mean, still, in terms of today, it was pretty rough life, but they were young blokes. They didn't really mind. They found it an exciting time. And the people I spoke to said, some of them said it was the best time of my life and I'd do it again, just like that. So I think that generally we've got to say that the, they had a, a good time, like people remember the army. Of course, in the army, you got shot at, and, but they don't talk about that. Uh, and you could get you, your head knocked off if you were in the ring with a very tough local who wanted to be fair dinkum. And a lot of the locals did because they wanted to show their mates how tough they were. They could go well with the tent boxers. So sometimes the tent boxers were in for a heavy storm of blows and they had to use all their experience to avoid trouble. But also the, um, the tent manager was also the referee in the ring and he could protect his boxers if they were coming under uh, heavy fire because he'd say, okay, time's up for that round, you know, when it wasn't really. Yeah. He was the timekeeper. And so he could protect them as he could protect anyone if the if thing got out of hand because he didn't want anyone hurt. He didn't want trouble. He just wanted to put on a show. So Jimmy Sharman was known for taking on boxers from all backgrounds. And unlike other places in Australia, all men were equal, as we've talked about, in pay and conditions. Why do you think it was different? Jimmy Sharman? Well, I think all the tents generally uh, did equal pay because they, if Sharman did, the others had to follow. And I think Sharman did because what he was interested in was quality performance, whether they be a really good boxer. And here, uh, this is 1951, this picture in the Sydney, the Sydney Royal Show. And you've got here Dave Sands I spoke about, an Australian champion, and he's there to put on an exhibition. This is Jimmy Senior. This is Jimmy the Second. They're both there. And you can see that there's a whole lot of boxes here. Now, Sharman was just interested in how good you could perform, not the colour of your skin. So it was about your skill as a boxer and your skill as a performer. And so they were paid equally. Now, they weren't paid a great deal of money unless you were really good. They were given a basic wage, but that's what you got in the general society if you're an unskilled worker. And he, he fed them pretty well. And, uh, you know, they got to sleep usually on the mat, but they had a roof over their head. And as I said, they had 
uh, an exciting time with the tents. So he was interested in, in not, you know, whether you're an Aboriginal or non-Aboriginal person, it was how you could operate in the tents and put on a great show. And here he did put on fantastic shows. Here he is at the Sydney show and look at the crowd of people. And when I was a young fellow, I experienced this. I never went inside the tents because it was a bit, of, a bit of a scary world. And they sort of uh, went out of fashion when I was about 10 or 12 or something. So I never really went inside. Uh, it was a bit edgy. Um, respectable people didn't always go inside. Um, and it was mainly a male audience, but not entirely so. And so it, it had that sort of hyper-masculine um, feeling about it. Uh, so you can see it was popular. And as long as boxers were putting on the good show and making a good show, um, Jimmy Sharma was happy. Great. Um and you, uh, you kind of just answered this question, but why why we think men were drawn to Jimmy Sharman's, I guess, to watch and to box within? Well, uh, you know, just to reiterate, it was an exciting life. Now, just before we leave this slide, see this chap here? Mm -hmm. He's got a big drum. And this was the start of it all. To get the crowd going, he would go boom, 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 boom. And people around the, the showgrounds would hear the booming and they would be drawn into... Um, to the front of the thing, um, which is called the pitch in the, 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 the terms of the, uh, the entrepreneurs. This was the pitch and this was the boardwalk. And so the aim would be to get people up onto the boardwalk and here's some blokes here uh, saying they're going to have a go. Now, a couple of these actually might be working with the showman. They might be plants in the audience or called G's to get up. And then other people would be encouraged. Oh, yeah, look, I think I'll have a go too. So it was an exciting life. And uh, here you can see, um, this was the, he was called the Black Bomber. He was Erwin um, uh, um, uh, Williams. And he always started the show by playing a song on the double bass or singing uh, to his ukulele, again, to attract people. So these, these guys were performers and that's what they loved about it. They loved performing. And then the, the Black Bomber was one of the heavyweight uh, boxers inside the tent and he would put on a, a good show inside amongst some of the bigger guys from the, the locals. And this guy here, was uh, his name was Buster Weir and we talked to Buster and you can see he's just a young Aboriginal bloke full of life. He's got this crazy uh, rock and roll shirt on and he, he joined the tents because it was a fun life and he became one of the, 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 the best uh, performers in the tent. And one of the, the uh, catch cries was, pound for pound, he's, he's the greatest little fighter in Australia. Wasn't a big bloke, but he enjoyed it immensely. So for all these reasons, uh, a lot of young men were attracted to give it a go, sign up with a troop and at least do a season. And sometimes men came back and might do five seasons. All right, I'm surprised his hands survived. Well done, uh, being a boxer and a bass player. There we go. Uh, so uh, what were the highs and lows of being on the circuit? Yeah, well, that's an interesting question. Um, and I was trying to find a, a picture that had the lows, and I don't think I could find one because they, they don't often get recorded. Um, the highs were, as I've said, uh, mateship, companionship, friendship, 
And here you see Alec Jackamos with one of his fellow boxers. And they're just young blokes having a great time together, traveling the country, arriving into town, going to the local Chinese restaurant, uh, everyone looking at them, knowing who they were, and then, of course, performing in the tents. So that was the great life. And Alec, who um, got married a couple of years after he, he did a year of wrestling in the tents, he went back as a married man to the big shows in Sydney and Melbourne and Brisbane every year to wrestle for about the next 15 years. So it was a lucrative thing for him to do, but he just loved the life. As for the lows, well, I guess some people didn't like their manager uh, and it was a bit of an autocratic relationship, you know, where you were tied to him and if you decided to leave, then you might get no pay because you signed up for the duration. So the cards fell in favour of the... Uh, in favour of the entrepreneur. Um, but, yeah, there might have been some who got lonely thought, oh, no, this is not life for me or I, I've got damaged in the tents. And uh, I don't know whether too many were damaged in the tents because um, they uh, were, were pretty much looked after. But uh, it did occur and I know that there was a couple of injuries where, where there was, um, I think in Geelong once, they held a tent with not enough padding underneath. It was sort of on the roadway. Usually it was on grass with sawdust and a mat over the top. But when it was on a roadway, if you got knocked down in the tent and you fell and hit your head, you know, you got brain damage. So they were the potential lows. But generally, as I said, the young blokes loved it. And when I interviewed them in old age, they said, it was fantastic. It was exciting. Great. They do it again. And from what I'm, what, what I'm hearing, which is, I guess, surprising from my, my expectation coming in as knowing nothing about it, was that there were many celebrities wherever they went. Well, I think they were because in those days, you know, they were exotic and some of the boxes were um, Maoris uh, or South Sea Islanders. And uh, they were built, or even if they were Aboriginal, they might be billed as a South Sea Islander or a Maori to give them a little bit more of an exotic flavour. Um, some of them had, you know, names like, you know, the killer from, from Carnarvon or whatever. Mm. So uh, that, that were the stage names, of course. Um, mm. So I think that they really, really enjoyed it. And, you know, there's, there's many other photos I could have shown you where they're just having a lot of fun. And some went on to great fame and fortune nationally. The mundane well, family is a good example, correct? Yes, well, look, that's right. I think what boxing did in the tents for these blokes was that it gave them worldly experience. They moved out of their country town or off the fringe camp or reserve they might have been trapped on almost, and they went into the wider world. They fought with whites in the tent um, and they... Uh, got to know a lot of blokes uh, as part of the troop, got close to them. Um, I think uh, racism didn't operate like it did outside. So it was a place that they got confidence about themselves. And when you box, you learn to handle yourself. You learn to have some um, resourcefulness and believe you can do things. And that stood them in good stead to play leadership roles later on. Why did, they, why, why did they come to an end? Well, it was mainly a number of things. I think, first of all, uh, TV. T 
television, which came in in the mid-50s, really affected the Sideshow Alley part of it because they depended on Sideshow Alley being a place of exoticness. They brought people from across the world to perform, and now you could see that on TV. Uh, Secondly, I think... uh, that there was a move to to find some of these shows, particularly in the sideshows, freak shows or animal shows, as now unacceptable in a more respectable society. But the boxing tents in particular were killed by medical regulations because in about 1970, the government applied um, the boxing regulations of the ring to the tents as well. And the ring regulations said if you had a knockdown... You couldn't fight for two weeks or a month or you had to have a, a, a medical doctor in attendance at all boxing matches. Well, that meant it was uneconomic. An entrepreneur couldn't have a medico on board and have to pay him. Mm. And secondly, if someone did get knocked down, it meant that they were useless to the troop for the next two weeks or three weeks or whatever. So it made the whole thing uneconomic and they just shut up overnight about 1970 except for in Queensland, which didn't put these regulations into place. And a few tents, even to this day, exist in Queensland, or at least one does. Yeah, I found out a little bit about that. That was interesting in the it's research. Broken. Yeah, Brophy's <laughs> tent still still operates because the regulations are different. Look at that. Wow. Yeah, amazing. Um, and especially if they're getting knocked down all the time because you mentioned that some of the fights were thrown, that the locals, you know, these drunk locals with the beer tent next door would come in and throw a few hard punches and it's exactly. better to go down early than to yeah. deal with that for, that for the next 10 minutes. Yes. yes, yes, yes. <laughs> fascinating, fascinating. Well, uh, I'll say thank you again for your time with us today, Professor Richard Broom. Okay. Thank you very much. My great pleasure and good luck, everyone. Well, that is all from us at The Aside. The video of this interview is available to Drama Victoria members. Feel free to click the link in the description. I would like to offer another thanks to Dr. Richard Broom, Emeritus Professor of History at La Trobe University and the President of the Historical Society of Victoria. He went above and beyond to prepare for this interview and to help our wonderful Victorian students all around this magnificent state. Thank you, Dr. Richard Broom. A sensational interview. Thank you for being so very well prepared. That is all from us at The Aside. If you would like to ask us a question, do not hesitate to do so at asidepodcast at outlook.com. The Aside Podcast has recently hit 60,000 listens and we are so thankful to everyone who listens each week or listens once a month or just occasionally. Thank you for making this podcast possible. There are a load of episodes in the bank, so feel free to go through that and find one that piques your interest. Thank you to Eltham College for letting us record here. Thank you to Aaron Searle for providing the music. Thank you to Drama Victoria for their ongoing support. And of course, thank you for listening.